0: Good morning travelers, pre-med students and undergraduates, welcome to Doctor's Inn. This podcast features top performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Tiffany Libby, who is a dermatologist and the director of most Micrographic and Dermatologic Surgery at her workplace. Dr. Libby earned her B.S.M.D. degree in seven years at Stevens Institute of Technology and Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, where she was inducted into the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society. She did her internship in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, Dr. Libby stayed at Einstein Medical Center as a fellow in dermatologic, most surgery, and cosmetics after completing her internship, which is where she did her residency. She's involved in resident surgical education, dermatology research involving oligopeptide, transdermal delivery, and co-directs the dermatology residents' weekly surgical clinic. So she's uh, very much involved in the field of dermatology. To follow up with Dr. Libby and learn about all things facial Aesthetics and the specialty in it of itself, along with the research. You can follow her on Instagram at Derm Doc Libby. That's D E R M Doc L I B B Y. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Libby to the in. Welcome, welcome. Uh, very excited to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: So I do want to spin the wheel of time a little bit into the opposite direction uh, to talk about your match day, and. From you trying to peek through the envelope to finally realizing where you matched, uh, your journey has been, I would say, very impressive, uh, to say the least, so far. So what gravitated you towards dermatology during your rotations to finally being matched?
1: So thank you for that introduction. Um, match day, when I think back to it, it was definitely euphoric. I mean, you find out on Monday if you match, and then you find out on Friday where you're going. And um, it's just sort of this culmination point of all your, to that point, all your life's hard work and your achievements. So I feel like it's a lot of emotions at once. And, um, you're also very happy for a lot of your, your friends and, um, you know, it's just a a wonderful day. And we just conducted all these interview sessions for medical students interested in uh, who are applying for dermatology. We just wrapped those up this past month. So Um, you know, just kind of bringing me back to that whole process, which is an arduous one, but, you know, the beginning of your journey. So um, back to my initial interest in dermatology. So I was serendipitously exposed to dermatology early. I did do a seven-year med program, um, a BSMD program. And during the summers in between the college portion, which was only three years, um, I had to do research projects. So I was placed actually from my chemistry professor at a dermatologist's office in New Jersey. So it's sort of, and I'm from New Jersey, so it's kind of um, it was. I, I wanted something local as well, and, and that was how my experience began. I knew really nothing about dermatology. My my dad is a physician, but he was a urologist. Mm, wow. Yeah, so I really knew nothing about dermatology. And as you know, in medical school, we really don't get much exposure to it early on. You know, we kind of get um, some. I would say didactic sessions and and learning about the skin as an organ. And uh, you may get a little bit of exposure. I I just think it's very limited and most more than not, will find out that they're interested later on when they're in their third or fourth year. Um, Some that do stumble on it earlier, like myself, you know, are, I would say lucky because once you find out you're interested early, it really helps give you a bit of a head start, I think, when mm. you're looking to apply to such a competitive specialty.
0: Right. And uh, it is the competitiveness of dermatology, because it is either the most competitive or second most competitive field in medicine, rotating, obviously, with uh, plastic surgery from year to year. So you do have to be a competitive aff- applicant, as as we just talked about. Uh, in terms of having a bunch of research papers under your belt before you apply, right? so. Uh, Getting that head start definitely helps you with the preparation. But in what instances would you say that you really uh, honed in? Like, was it your research? Was it the clinical hours dedicated strictly to dermatology?
1: Well, I think first it begins with your passion. So I think you find out what you're interested in. I think I always give medical students the advice of keeping an open mind. Even if you have an inkling you might be interested in a certain specialty, at the end of the day, you're going to be a holistic physician. So you really want to give it your all in every rotation. When we're looking at applicants for dermatology, we want, we actually look at these rotations your clinical rotations, your third and fourth year. We want to see that you're doing well in those as well. You know, we don't want to see um, for this isolated interest in dermatology doesn't feel very genuine. You know, we want to see that you are well-rounded, that you understand everything. And I say, this is very important because dermatology as a field overlaps with so many other specialties you know, from pediatrics to geriatrics. So we see the whole gamut of patients, you know, from all, all walks of life, all ages. We see oncology patients who are undergoing chemotherapeutic agents and we have to understand drug rashes. We see, we have to learn about all the most rare infectious diseases. So there's so much to know. And I think that's why it's such a re- rewarding and very intellectually stimulating field. But I think that, you know, I think definitely you wanna keep an open mind when you go into medical school. If you find that you're interested early, a good way to get involved is to start reaching out to your department. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a department at your medical school, um, there are other options. It can be a little harder because now you have to seek out another department or another, maybe an academic practice that is involved with research because- I think clinical research or any type of research in medicine is really the foundation of all of how we progress our field. So, you know, getting those, getting those skill sets doesn't need to be in dermatology specifically. You know, I think we are looking for sort of any experience in research and just showing your passion. You know, we understand that your, your road to dermatology may not be traditional. You may not have that early interest and that's okay. But we want to see that you're interested in learning.
0: Right. Um, so what you just said in your answer I have a couple questions to lead off from that but I guess you can choose uh which one to answer first uh The first thing is, do you feel a type of obligation? So you mentioned research and clinical research and how we are going to move the field forward. That's the main way to do that. Uh, Do you feel an obligation yourself as a dermatologist to do the research that you have been doing? I mean, you have had a a variety of publications so far. So is that kind of the reason why? Or is it kind of more so based on the passion or both?
1: I think it's both. And I think your passions can change. I mean, I just, like I mentioned, we just went through all these interview process in January. Um, and I was really impressed with so many of the medical students having such a good grasp on their research interests already. I can't say that I was in that place when I was applying, I sort of was more wide-eyed and looking at the whole field and excited about everything in dermatology. I think that, um, it's very important to always be asking questions mm-hmm. and asking questions is sort of the foundation of, of research and right. yeah, so exactly. So I think that that's, um, Critical in, in many fields, and I th- I think what's nice in dermatology is we also put a lot of emphasis on research and we allot time for it. I say that in our field we have more of a. Oftentimes, you can find more of this work-life balance that we're always looking for, and I find that it's afforded me ability to have time to spend towards my interests. Which, for example, right now, which you know I, I um, didn't mention earlier, but I am also pursuing a master's in public health. So oh, wow. that that is okay. a, more, a, a latest project of mine and. I think just being an academics and always being in a place where you're you're constantly stimulated by the residents asking amazing questions and able to learn how to apply certain research methods. I think it's very exciting. So I, I'm excited for that path for me. And I can't say it would be something I might have pursued if I was in a if I didn't have as much control over my schedule.
0: Right. Uh, having that perspective of choosing students to go into residency, uh, dermatology to residency, you said that there were certain students that you were impressed with in terms of them really knowing their research interests and things like that. So would you have any other uh, criteria that you look for in students? I mean, we obviously touched upon how students also have to be holistic as a doctor and uh, have good feedback from most of their rotations, if not all, um, are there anything else, any criteria that you look for?
1: There are, there are many, I would say that we want to see people who are genuinely interested and passionate about dermatology as a field. And I think you demonstrate that by being involved in interest groups, um, seeking opportunities to learn and get mentorship in the field. You know, there are many, if you don't have these opportunities available to you at your school, there are organizations like the American Academy of Dermatology that offers opportunities for medical students and a variety others as well that offer outreach even, you know, earlier on in your career. And I think, you know, we we do like to look for research, I think, because it does show that you have this interest and it shows that you kind of have that um, framework for being curious and thinking about how you're not just asking questions, but going to find ways to be able to implement them clinically.
0: Mm, Yeah, that is a very uh, good criteria to have. So, we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, into most micrographic surgery. You are a most micrographic surgeon. One of the inside uh, jokes in the medical community uh, is that doctors who subspecialize in Mohs surgery are surgeons at heart, but they didn't like the unpredictable lifestyle associated with surgery. So Mohs became the best option to have a good work-life balance while also being a surgeon. So (laughs) does that hold any truth?
1: It's so funny. I mean, it's funny to hear that. I think there is certainly some truth in all of these um, sayings, you know, and what I will say is dermatology as a specialty, I don't think people realize this, is kind of split into three different disciplines. You have general dermatology, um, you have dermatopathology. So we spent a lot of time at, at the scope. About a third of our board exam is looking at path images. I, when I took mine, I had, we had to fly to Tampa. It was actually at the scope. Now I believe mm. it's virtual. Um, and then a third of it's procedural. So it's surgical dermatology, as well as that incorporates some cosmetic curriculum as well. But yeah, I think for me with Mohs surgery, it is a very, it's all procedural. That's certainly an aspect that I really enjoy about it. There are many other aspects that I enjoy, you know, from it being very rewarding in the sense that the patient comes to you with the skin cancer diagnosis. You are able to remove the skin cancer, cure them that day. Talk to them about reconstructive plans, put them back together, essentially, mm-hmm. and all under local anesthesia, all within the same day. So it's very rewarding on multiple levels. And right. we can't ignore the idea of work-life balance either. So, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah I'm, I think that it does afford all of those benefits.
0: Yeah, and I mean, uh, also to give you some—I don't know if it's cloud or what the word for this. Like, you're pursuing a master's right now, which is, (laughs) I mean, it is uh, very impressive to say the least. Um, What I do want to touch upon is something that you mentioned about uh, treating the patient the same day with most surgery, and most surgery obviously involves from my research and my team's research uh, is that it it involves skin layer resection, then you process the layer onto the slides. So again, the histology and uh, things like that. And then you do the review, right? And this can go through multiple stages if the cancer is found. Uh, So do you often leave the incision open until you confirm the removal of all I would say, cancerous regions. And if you can just like walk us down, because yeah. I did simplify it a bit, but yeah.
1: Yes. So I'm happy to go through the whole process and the procedure and sort of even how I explain it to some of the patients. So then by the time the patient comes to me, they have a diagnosis of a skin cancer. And most of the time, we're treating basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we first anesthetize the patient, local anesthesia. We take a small clinical margin around that remaining tumor or the scar that we, you know, see from the biopsy, we take it in a way, it's a specialized way of removing that tissue so that we're able to process it in the lab horizontally. So we're looking at, if you're looking at a disc, you know, kind of um, from the side view, we're looking at everything that touches basically what that would touch the defect, if you will. Mm -hmm. So um, traditionally when we're processing, let's say excision specimens or even the biopsy specimen, It's processed in a bread loafing manner where they're basically kind of just slicing through and we're evaluating that depth. That only allows us to visualize about 1% of the margin, which was always surprising to me that we're able to call something clear, And which is why, you know, with most surgery, because we're looking at all of the margins and we have this um, essentially 100% margin control here, we're able to... Evaluate and know that all the tumors out. So we have a very high cure rate for these tumors, around 98% for basal cell squamous uh, and, and 97% for primary squamous cell carcinomas. Oh wow. But when we take out that first piece, we bring it to the lab, it's processed and it's mapped. So you know, let's say under the microscope, I'm looking at the slide. Now they, they, it takes them about 30, 40 minutes to process my slides. Then I serve as a pathologist. I'm now sitting at the microscope and I'm reading the margins. And if I see tumor at say my one o'clock, let's look at it. It's a clock face one o'clock. I see tumor. I'm going to go back to the patient and just remove it from that portion, leaving the rest of it intact. So those benefits are, you are only chasing tumor you're leaving, you're maximizing tissue conservation. So normal tissue and basically only removing the tumor. So this is great for cosmetically and functionally um, sensitive areas like the head and neck, you know, maybe mm-hmm. by the eyelid, you don't have four millimeter of margins to take. And you know, you want to make sure you get all that tumor out because you don't want a recurrence. So, um, so that's, that's the next step. If I see more, obviously I go back and there. That's what we call a second stage. And we keep repeating that till we remove all the tumor and the margins on histologic examination under the microscope are clear. Mm-hmm. And then we discuss reconstruction with the patient. Now, yes, they just, you know, can, they can go multiple rounds, but on a national average, 70% of the time you get it out on the first, uh, first stage, that's just the national average. Um, because the national average of stages for most surgery cases is 1.6. So it's, Around seventy percent of the time. So patients always come in. How many? How many stages do you think I'll go? You know. So I usually tell them seventy percent of the time. Obviously, for more aggressive tumors, I don't want to make that prediction. But we'll know more once we get this first uh, result back.
0: Right. Well, I mean, this is uh, very interesting. I mean, I was just picturing it as you were saying all throughout. Now, you did mention the head, and I did see a video on your uh, feed, and it showed a video of literally the patients. There was a big incision in the scalp, and you had to, and it was done in a very.
1: Was it the. O- I don't know Z? the terminology. The, yes. was the yes. rotation flap? Yes. So. Also, just to answer, I realize I forgot to answer one of your questions earlier, but in between that, time, so the time when the tissue is being processed, so the 30, 40 Mm -hmm. minutes where my team now in the lab is processing my tissues to make me those slides to analyze, the patient is in the room comfortably, you know, numbed up. They're reading a book, they're on their phone, they're bandaged up and they're open at that time historically, the way Mohs was, so Mohs actually is named after Frederick Mohs, who developed this procedure as a medical student in the 1940s. So back then they didn't have um, as advanced processing techniques as we do now. So they would leave the patient open for 24 hours, repeating that step. Yeah. The day after. So just to give some historical background there, but back to the, the flap. So yes, that was a large squamous cell carcinoma in a smoker we decided to close him. So the scalp is very, um, is very tight tissue because of the galea, very thick fibrous septae there. So basically we had to make a very long incision, um, bilaterally it's called, it's a bilateral rotation flap. So we're kind of recruiting tissue from, um, you know, for a wide sort of flap of tissue in, and we kind of rotate it in. So we call it an O to Z because, you start out with an O and you end up with what right. looks like a Z. Yeah. All done on local anesthesia. So it's pretty miraculous. You know, the patient's very comfortable. Some things we have to worry about are giving too much lidocaine, you know, but there are different tricks when we are doing these surgeries.
0: Right. So this is a question, this next question, maybe purely based out of my ignorance and lack of understanding. But is there an alternative to most surgery for elderly patients? Because the reason I ask is. I I would imagine it is harder for the skin of an elderly patient to heal without scarring due to the loss of elasticity and just, you know, rejuvenation of, of the skin.
1: So it's a very good question. Um, first part to answer that, yes, there are other alternatives and Mohs is not it's a gold standard by which we can remove skin cancer, certain types and get the highest cure rate. But there are other alternatives, and it's our duty as a most surgeon to discuss this with the patient. Go over the different cure rates. For example, if you use some topical chemotherapeutic agents for the right, more superficial tumors, you have around an 80 to 90 percent cure rate. And for the patient that in term, where this tumor might not affect quality of life, or they may be 90 plus, you know, I, I these tumors are very slow growing and they usually are not the cause of death. They don't tend to spread elsewhere, metastasize, unless you have more aggressive features of squamous cell carcinoma, but they can, if you leave them to grow, they will grow and eat through certain tissues and can get very large and disfiguring. So they can be, they can be pretty morbid, but they are less likely to be a a high risk, um, you know, for, for mortality.
0: Right. I see. Okay, so yeah, there's definitely uh, different options. So one of the other things that I want to touch upon is that you play the violin and tennis. Uh, so do you think the hand-eye coordination and reflexive and the precise movements that is involved, especially with uh, playing the violin, did it translate over to your precision in the surgeries that you do?
1: It's such an interesting question. I, <laughs> I'm sure it had some interplay. I also think some of it's genetic. My dad's a urologist, and he was a he is a surgeon. Right and he actually specialized in micrographic surgery I, um, so it's sort of funny how our our paths have have sort of overlapped in that way but i i'm sure i think music you know and i have young kids now and i have them starting in music i think it transforms the brain in in ways that are very applicable and very helpful to many different life skills but yeah i mean i have a lot to say about how much i enjoyed violin and how I think it's kind of shaped me through discipline, probably some sort of fine motor skills as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, (laughs) you do see that with with kids who are pursuing music, it is sometimes the case that it is because of quote unquote, I don't know if you heard the term like tiger parents. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But uh, so so you did say that uh, violin helps you with uh, curating discipline, things like that. So can you please expand a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, no, I definitely had a tiger mom. (laughs) my, My, um, I would say my parents, you know, they came here, they were first generation immigrants. They came from Hong Kong for high school and college respectively, but they wanted us to my brother and me to experience all sorts of activities and decide which ones we wanted to pursue. And sometimes it wasn't as much of our decision as it was theirs and music being a big one of them, you know, it was, um, I had violin lessons starting at the age of four, as well as piano. Wow. Okay. And violin. At some point I was playing up to three times a week lessons on top of my schoolwork, on top of other sports, on top of being involved in other extracurriculars in school. So I remember having to be, become very organized very early on and having to juggle excelling in multiple different things at once, because that was sort of what was expected of me. And then I had this high bar that was set for myself. And I, I say that at some point, the bar that I set for myself became higher than what my parents set for me. I don't know if this is, you know, how much of its nature versus nurture, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with having certain expectations that you had to meet mm-hmm. in the type of culture I was brought up in. And I think that for sure really shaped, really shaped me.
0: Yeah. um, And I think it is also very apparent uh, now as well. I mean, when we were doing our research, uh, it seems like you have your feet dipped into a lot of different avenues. Uh, um, And it is obvious that you take your work very seriously. Uh, You have a very a variety of Med publications under your belt, as we talked about, along with featurettes and health magazines, skincare articles, and even your work with some of the esteemed uh, skincare brands. So uh, also, there were some posts that highlighted that you were studying on a Sunday morning, just catching up on public health, things like that. So what helps you maintain the passion or the seriousness for your craft? Uh, Is it you know, is it from the childhood, again, a routine structured lifestyle? Or is it also evolved into something else?
1: Well, you guys certainly did your research. (laughs) Um, I I mean, that was yesterday morning, actually. And that was mandatory for my for my public health. But I, I like I think really boils down to just having a passion for learning, like that really makes me happy. Um, My husband thinks I'm so weird. I always talk about how, you know, I miss those days in medical school when I could just sit in the library undistracted. you know, I didn't have children running around or, and I I think less, I would say um, social media distractions because we didn't even have Instagram then, Um, you know, and just having this unobstructed study time, it just felt so glorious. You know, you could have the whole day and decide now I, you know, yesterday was, I got a full hour to myself, which is pretty nice actually in this household, <laughs> to, to <laughs> <study>. but, <laughs> um, but I think just setting, and just kind of following your passion. I really love learning. I, I think that, you know, just being always being curious and medicine's always changing You know, you don't want to feel that pressure. And I think there's certainly times we succumb to that pressure of feeling like you must know everything and you're never going to know everything, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's just about what you want to know, how you want to prioritize your time. Some days I have work to do and I say, I'm not in the mood. I want to go take my kids to the park. I want to do this. And I want to go out to dinner with my husband and I will figure it out later. Do what you want to do. That's what's going to make you happy. If you don't want to do an MPH, don't do an MPH. Don't do it for the sake of being in academics or, or such. Do it because you are curious about it. And the way I'm doing it is I'm taking it so slow that who knows, I'll still probably be doing this in 10 years, but I'm taking one course per semester. And I have no, I have a very low threshold to say, if I get very busy in my career, deferring a year. So, you know, I think just making room for yourself and realizing that, nothing has to be set set so rigidly. Hmm. If you look at these past few years, you know, there's so many unexpected curveballs that can come at us. So you have to be adaptable, especially in this new landscape.
0: Beautifully said. Uh, We're going to shift gears just a little bit here um, and talk about the skin and dermatology on a more general prospect, I'd say. So because the skin is the largest organ in the human body, you do see a variety of medical conditions. I'd say probably one of the most out of many specialties that exist. Um, I read somewhere that there are upwards of 3000 skin conditions that that is currently there and it's it's because of so many different categories of inflammatory ulcerative or blistering conditions also not to mention prevalent skin cancers as you uh deal with so with that said would you say does it become overwhelming to memorize remember and also recall right all the different types of issues that are related to the skin
1: so absolutely. I mean, dermatologists, and that's why it's its own specialty in one. So dermatologists are experts in skin, hair and nails, and you're right. There are over 3,000 sort of diseases and or conditions that affects these organs. So I would say in dermatology, I mean if you <laughs> took a if you if you were able to be a fly in the wall in a didactic session, I mean they want us to memorize, I mean we need to memorize sort of these genes um, that, are basically one disease of a family that's on one Island, you know, it's like, they, it's almost like a game. We have to, there is a lot of recall memorization. Right. It's fun. I think that we, it's very nerdy. I would say dermatology as a field, you know, we kind of love to test ourselves constantly and we're always wanting to um, memorize almost every obscure detail. And it is very complex. I think dermatology sometimes gets misunderstood because it kind of boils in some of the more, Well, I'll say just in the, in the realm of media, you know, they think that I've definitely had people, people ask, you know, are dermatologists, same things, estheticians, you know, so, which is, and then we to go and explain, and I think it's a, it's, not insulting to me. It's more, wow. We really need to educate educate the public on what is a dermatologist because you know, if they have a skin condition, they should know that they should go that there is this medical professional who is specializing in skincare disease, and then obviously beyond that, even more subspecialties. So, in terms of how much there is to know, the breadth of dermatology is extremely, extremely vast.
0: Right, and we were talking about histology earlier, and uh, I can imagine that a rash can indicate a variety of things based on how it looks through the naked eye or the microscope. So is there a form of pattern recognition that is involved with the experience that you would get uh, through, you know, looking through different skin conditions that help to identify and then treat them as such? Because to me as an outsider who haven't Um, been in the field of dermatology, they look very similar, but obviously to you, it would be very different.
1: Absolutely. And that's kind of the basis of our residency education. So different programs will train you differently. Where I was trained, we kind of broke it down into different patterns, as you mentioned. So whether it's something that looks eczematous, you know, or psoriasiform. So it kind of like, we kind of bucket them into certain um, pathways or or whether, whether it's a blistering disease, whether it's dermal. So some conditions, you know, say lipoma, you know, which is a fatty tumor growth. There's no really surface change, but there is some dermal component there. So we kind of start there. And then just to show you the different complexities within eczema, there's over 10 different types of eczema. So we have deshydratic, asteatotic, you know, allergic contact dermatitis. And there's, you know, several different types of psoriasis who don't, you don't hear about, you kind of hear it lumped into one big category. You know, there's a whole differential when we start um, thinking about dermatologic disease and we first sort of break them down into what sort of reaction pattern do they fall into and then other key history and key history features um, and physical exam findings.
0: I see. I see. I mean, yeah, that would make a lot of sense just to kind of simplify and categorize them together. So. I like that you have many interests outside of oncology and most surgery. So things like cosmetic surgeries, injectables, you know, like botox, fillers, etc. and then lasers. Uh so shifting to the cosmetic realm a little bit. The talk of anti-aging and slow aging has been very prominent in both scientific and medical research. Uh you have a role in this and you uh have your enthusiasm in this field as well so can you please explain the role of dermatology in relation to these realms
1: yes so in our residency curriculum you will also learn about cosmetics it's a smaller part of our curriculum so i always tell residents you know um they're always asking for more of this too because it is commonly from the outside view many people will think dermatologists are mostly cosmetic providers because maybe it's not sexy always on instagram to talk about eczema talk about psoriasis talk about some weird infectious diseases you know so What you see mostly is a very superficial um, viewing of dermatology, but it is actually within our curriculum. And for me, I did both a fellowship in Mohs Micrographic Surgery and a separate fellowship in cosmetics and lasers. So the Cosmetic Dermatologic Surgery Fellowship is by the ASDS, that's American Society of Dermatologic Surgeons. That's a one-year fellowship where you do over a thousand procedures um, spanning You know, botulinum toxin injections, filler injections, um, laser procedures, chemical peels, laser liposuction, blepharoplasty. So I, you know, dabbled in all of that. And for my style as a Mo surgeon, so I actually split my clinical time doing two days of Mo's a week and one day of cosmetics. And I always tell my patients because one of, oftentimes, one of the first things they ask is, will I scar? And I say, anytime we cut into the skin, we will have a risk of it scarring. But we have a lot of modalities now which we can use to help that. Scar heals scarlessly. And it's true. It starts with your surgical technique and your surgical planning. It has to do with your ability to heal as a patient. For example, my smokers, I tell them I never know how my smokers will heal. It's very unpredictable. But if you can cut back and try to during the wound healing period, pre and post op, it helps significantly. Um, and then I tell them I have a lot of tricks up my sleeves and I, from doing my cosmetic fellowship to enhance how scars heal, I mix in V beam lasers, which is a pulse dye laser you know, a resurfacing laser, there are different injections that you can employ to soften up scar tissue. Yeah, I tell them usually, let's let's worry about our first goal to clear the tumor. And um, second part, we can, you know, leave it to me and we'll, we'll discuss it in our plan moving forward.
0: Yeah. So uh, why is it difficult to tell how your uh, smokers will heal in terms of scarring?
1: So you actually have less oxygen to the cell so so usually they tend to heal more poorly more unpredictable scarring has it's correlated with how much you smoke um but typically in smokers you'll see surgeons um hesitate using grafts per se that require more Mm. you know more metabolic demand um to to close something and will opt for reconstructive techniques that um are more durable or sturdy
0: i see uh, that makes sense um Well, the skin gets the harshest treatment in our bodies because it is constantly exposed to the varying conditions of the outside environment. So, if you had to recommend one product to maintain skin health, what would it be?
1: Well, you know, all dermatologists will tell you it's sunscreen. Right. (laughs) because, Because, you know, and it's not for vanity, you know, which... Ninety percent of skin visible signs of skin aging are due to UV radiation. Mm -hmm. So your UVA, UVB, because UVC does not make it through, right? And about ninety, the same ninety percent of skin cancers are really attributable to UV radiation as well. So if not for vanity, do it for skin cancer prevention. And you know the we found that the UV rays not only do they cause discoloration, like melasma, to come up on the skin, but they also generate. Free radical production and they can damage collagen and elastin below. So, collagen on its own will start to break down usually at a rate of 1% per year. And even by our 40s, around 25% of that skin's collagen has sort of deteriorated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something I usually tell my patients because they think, you know, oh, well, I I just want to age naturally. That's fine. You can definitely age naturally. And there's ways to do it with uh, cosmetics because you can still slow down that rate of collagen breakdown. Um, You know, there's sort of this natural process of your body's breaking it down and regenerating new, but at some point the scale tips and you end up not producing as much as you are breaking down. So, you know, things like biostimulators, like Sculptra, those modalities or those injectables will actually help stimulate collagen production.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad that you just mentioned collagen because uh, we asked some of our listeners to send in a few questions. And one of the questions was, uh, are collagen supplements necessary, especially for younger people?
1: So, you know, there's more research that needs to be done in this realm. I would say anecdotally, I definitely have patients that will say that they feel more energized or they feel like their joints feel better. Or they feel less bloated even on collagen supplementation. And my question has always been how, when, when you ingest these collagen supplements and they get broken down into these amino acids in the stomach acid, right? How does that then make it to the skin? And that was always my question. And it's interesting because I do work with a company now that Probably is the number one seller of collagen supplement supplements, and I'm helping them with their skincare line. But they showed me some of the research, and actually there is research coming out just showing if you're allowing more of those amino acids, those building blocks, to be present um, systemically, hmm. they can be taken up and used not only in joints but also in skin. So I think there's really little downside little to no downside really in taking them. And anecdotally, I definitely hear improvement. Are they necessary? I would say no. But are they a nice adjunct? I think they're perfectly fine to use. And I think as we learn more, we'll see what their true benefits to the skin are.
0: Perfect. One of the other questions that our listeners uh, sent in, well, it's a lot of it about his skin care, uh, kind of based on what you mentioned, right? About how dermatology, there's a public notion. But uh, do you believe natural skin care is better than chemical based skin care or?
1: Oh, wow. So that's a um, that's a big topic because anything that's what we think of natural, right? They're all chemicals. Everything's a chemical. Right. When you think exactly. It. We yeah. all know this as, as going through medical school and having done some basic science and chemistry. Everything is a chemical. Too much H2O, which is water, will kill you, right? <laughs> so, you know, and um, natural, let's say poison ivy, that's natural, that's found out, but you don't want to rub that all over your skin. Right. So I think there's this big misconception, you know, it sounds better, right? Natural versus chemical. We sort of cringe when we hear the word chemical and we think, oh, natural, it Just it's definitely a marketing um, ploy here. And I, I feel badly because some of these well-renowned skincare companies that have been doing this and have been tried and true for so many years with long-standing history in skincare now feel like they have to cater to sort of the currents in the skincare industry and trying to promote or advertise that their ingredients are natural, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's a, It's a very gray area because again, when I I think there were like two or three questions that were based around this uh, verification. And it just when I was reading, I was just like, yeah, but basically every single, you know, compound in our body is chemical. So it
1: It comes down to the it comes down to the ingredients, really, I would say look at the ingredients. And I would say a lot of natural products, so they might not have preservatives, right? So some preservatives, um, so they might I feel like there's some that are villainized on preservatives and that has now led to other preservatives being used that may or may not be any better than the ones that we have currently or may cause even more side effects. And now we're going to find out later. Um, So in terms of natural, you know, they can, they don't. They are lacking preservatives. They're more likely to harbor bacteria, which is not good for your skincare products. And you have a shorter shelf life. You, who knows how long you can really use them for safely? Um, some of these natural products also are really high in or heavy in fragrances, and fragrances can tend to cause some allergies and allergic reactions. So, as a dermatologist. I don't advise patients to look for natural skincare. I usually tell them to avoid looking for natural skincare, but you know, there are, there's definitely, it's definitely making big waves because even, you know, very grounded in science skincare companies are now starting to advertise or specifically pick ingredients in their products that fit that natural profile. Mm-hmm. And then I think the one thing to remember is everything is a chemical. So look at the ingredients, pay more attention to the ingredients than whether something's natural or not. And if you have any questions, bring bring your products into your dermatologist. I love when my patients come in with a bag of their products and say, hey, you know, what should I cut out? Should I what am I using here? You know, yeah. um, so I think it's very helpful.
0: And yeah, I mean, um, the listeners can definitely give your page a look to get more insight for sure into the products. Um, so we're near the end of the podcast uh, before I do let you go, I think it would be unwise for me to not. Uh, ask one question about the bsmd program so it is a very popular program it's a seven-year program that some schools have adopted i actually have a friend in that program so uh do you feel or did you feel underprepared at all during the seven years or had any doubts that you know since you're in an accelerated program instead of the typical eight years four years of undergrad for med school did you feel any type of um doubts
1: I did not. I think it depends on your on on the person who's going into the program. If you know you are, because there's pros and cons of the program. I would say pro for sure is accelerated timeline. You don't need to apply to medical school, right? So I started this program when I was 17. So I started med school when I was 20. So that's a real accelerated program. You know, I, I graduated when I was 24. Um, there's no MCAT, or you you might have to take it for formality, which I did in my program, and in terms of cons i would say you know what you're signing up for you're signing up for more of this science based curriculum and you know you might not get those experiences that are thought of as traditional college experiences like studying abroad or taking all you know more extracurriculars or more electives you usually have to meet a more rigorous more rigorous workload within those short period of time so i remember having to take i think upwards of 20 to 24 credits per semester. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds <like> a pain. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And, and I will say the school I was at, we didn't have many electives, but I, with my um, love for music, I thought, okay, well, why don't I take, I, I took an extra class or I took some classes on art, um, which were, were fun. You know, we take trips into New York and go visit art galleries. Um, I also took a class on orchestration, which was very interesting because I'd been part of so many different orchestras and I never really listened. It really changed the way I listened to music. And some of the final exam questions were, uh, what instrument is playing now? Is this instrument using a mute? If so, what kind of mute, you know, like it really fine-tuned your hearing. And I, I feel like it was, you know, I think you could still definitely pursue interest outside. I will say, I had a very active social life, even in my, <laughs> even in my seven years there, mostly in, you know, in the college portion, even in, in the medical school, I actually met my husband Miles in medical school, who's not in medicine and, um, in a totally different field in finance. But I think it's depends on what you want to do. I think, um, there are definitely benefits, more benefits to the program itself because their initiative is to keep these students in, in state, mm-hmm. yeah. They're hoping that kind of go through this program and you stay there and you kind of start, you, you you work in that state. Um, and I do have heard of, you know, I actually got advice too, when I was, I did take Bamcat, and I had gotten advice on, you know, Hey, you did pretty well. You should probably apply out. And I said, well, I made a commitment. I'm doing the seven year. And if I had to apply out, I would have had to complete a fourth year at the college there and then apply out. So um, I think there's definitely an advantage to not having to stress again, to do that application process. because Oh boy, I've been mentoring a lot of students and people are burning out, you know? And I say, listen, you know, if you're going to burn out now, like th- you have to really reevaluate because this is just the start of your journey and it's, it gets tougher. Like I have no great news here, you know, it gets tougher and it, it, we, it requires a lot of grit and mental strength.
0: Yeah, for sure. 100%. Uh it it is i mean it does seem that overall your your experience was really good and you did enjoy the 7 years of accelerated program now before I let you go, Dr. Levy, I do want to take you through a guided story that we like to do in this podcast. So um, we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by doctor's inn to rest for lunch. Now, before you leave the innkeeper, which is me, um, I'm going to ask you to share a quote or a piece of advice so I can just frame it on my wall. So what would that piece of advice be? It can be something that you live your life by.
1: I will say this is more of a later of a more recent mantra for me as I try to juggle. You know, recently my my youngest is one, so I feel like each kid sort of adds another layer of disruption to your life, <laughs> in in, many, in good ways, more good ways right. than not. Um, but I would say, do what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. I mentioned that earlier, but I really think if you're doing that, it is applicable to so many different parts of your life. Whether you, you know, it helps you decide what passion to follow, whether you should be taking on that new opportunity. Does this thing, does this opportunity make me happy? Is it something that interests me? It helps you decide how you prioritize your responsibilities because sometimes you have to choose between doing two things you might want to do. So I think just do what makes you happy and you really can't go wrong
0: yeah do what makes you happy so uh, simple but yet so true so thank you so much dr levy for the time that you have given us here i mean dermatology is a very appealing field to say the least but i really wanted to dive into the subspecialty within uh moe's micrographic surgery and we did just that along with uh, so much more so thank you very very much
1: You're very welcome.
0: All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow Dr. Olivia on Instagram. See you guys next time. Bye.